Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. So we're going to start with the definition of trauma. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. What is trauma? So one of the reasons that I'm here on this earth, I believe, is to help us redefine trauma. Because for 150 years of clinical study, we've been looking at which kinds of events count as trauma and which do not. And the problem with that is that it doesn't take into account the person living through it. And so the definition that I use in my work is really simple. You have trauma anytime you have an unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home. So unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home. So using the ice, would, would that be unbearable? Yeah. Yes. So potentially, mm-hmm. right, you're giving yourself this really extreme experience. You're having these emotions come up, except we had this beautiful relational home set up by Sarah's mm-hmm. beginning. And then also the fact that we were all around each other sharing in that experience so that we could situate it. Because otherwise, you're just in the extreme without the relational home, and you have no one you can share that with. So if you had the same experience, but someone pushed you Mm -hmm. in the ice, and then you got out, and there was no one to kind of hold safety, and you're just running out of the woods, that would be traumatic. Yes. Yep. For sure. The, actually, one of the things that helped me really work on my definition of trauma was a story from John. Yeah, so uh, we think of trauma as uh, usually sexual assault or combat war. Um, the masses think of trauma that way. Uh, I've had clients, and I'm like, well, uh, I've never had any trauma. And then we start talking, and of course, everyone has that trauma. And I use this ex- example just because it, it's silly. Um, so I've never had, or to my knowledge, I've never had um, um, any kind of uh, molestation or, or sexual stuff um, or even like serious bullying. Uh, but in high school, someone stole my skateboard, and um, it, it, they only stole my skateboard for like 30 seconds. And one could argue, like, that's ridiculous. If you know my story, that is not traumatic at all. But here's what's kind of traumatic, what was traumatic for me. So it wasn't that someone stole my skateboard. Um, I've been begging my mom to buy me this Christian Hasoy skateboard that she didn't have money for. And back in the day, it was a $100 skateboard. And, you know, back in the 80s, 90s, that's like a lot of money for a skateboard. She finally bought it for me, and then I had all the things on it. The first day I rode it to school, um, someone grabbed it and took it. And so in that moment, the 30 minutes of this person taking it, I didn't have a relational home. There was uh, unsafety. And it wasn't just a skateboard. It was the story of begging for it, her finally buying it. She didn't have the money to do it, but she took me and did it for me anyway. And then me thinking I have to go home and telling her that I don't have it anymore. So to me, that was more traumatic than the actual taking of the skateboard. Um, But I use that example because it's so silly, or it can be, that just someone took your skateboard for 30 minutes how can that be traumatic, right? So the meaning of it, the story around it, and my interpretation of what happened is what makes it traumatic. 
And also the way that it seeps into your later life. So I remember the first time we talked about this. I don't know if you remember this. You were talking about scarcity mentality in terms of Mm. physical belongings and how you felt like this maybe outsized sense of scarcity around stuff. Mm. And that was actually how that story came out. So these things are trauma can be very sneaky and subterranean um, and it can impact your behavior in all areas of your life which um, can sound scary, but it's also an exciting opportunity to work through things because instead of having to delve into the past, um, we can work with the symptom in the moment. Um, And so I think that that's really exciting. I think it might be helpful to break down the definition a little bit and talk about what goes on in your brain and body when you have trauma, if that's okay. So um, the reason that I like unbearability as the first part of the definition is because it sets the bar sufficiently high so that we don't Mm -hmm. stretch the term to meaninglessness. Because in psychology, just like in medicine, if, if trauma is just like how we are all the time, we're all traumatized by everything, we don't really need to study it anymore. Just like we don't really study the common cold. There used to be a whole division of study for the common cold. We don't do that anymore because it's just assumed to be a part of life. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't want to do that with trauma. We want to make sure that we have research dollars and we're thinking about it and figuring out which interventions are most effective for which kinds of trauma and, and all of that. So unbearability raises the bar sufficiently high, but it also maps on really nicely to what's going on in your brain and body when you have something that's significantly overwhelming. So when we have a regular event, right? Like let's say, um, you know, last night we had this nice time together and we had dinner and we hung out. Nothing super overwhelming happened, right? It might've been intense. We had deep conversation, but it was essentially something that we could incorporate and integrate into our memory system pretty easily. Within four to 24 hours after any event, your brain makes a neat little file. And this is where I always say, if, I, if anyone knows anyone at Pixar, let's make a movie about this. Yeah. Because if we understood memory better, we would shame ourselves a lot less. Mm. So between four and 24 hours, these little dudes, you can imagine these, I imagine Pixar animated dudes, in the back of your brain in an area called the hippocampus, create a memory file. Inside out. Yeah, yes, but just memory. Exactly. And so for um, in the file, you have the narrative content. The narrative has to have coherence, beginning, middle, and end, just like you were talking about before with the um, hero's journey, mm-hmm. right? There's an arc mm-hmm. that ends. The second thing in the folder is the emotional content. Was it a funny thing that happened? Was it a sad thing that happened, right? What are the, what are the emotions that go with that story? And then there's a set of meaning tags that your brain uses to bring forward memories when it needs to look at them and reference them and put them away. And so when we talk about the skateboard story, the meaning tags are probably the most significant thing of that story because what that meant for you, even though now at 50, that might seem like a very small thing, or from the outside, it might seem like a very small thing, that significance, the meaning of that loss was everything because you lost belonging you had to then reckon with your parent who had spent so much time and money buying this thing for you. Mm-hmm. So is this really big deal? Um, so when a normal event happens, you get all of that stuff within four to 24 hours. When you have something that's unbearably emotional and emotions are biological events, they're not these things we can like mm-hmm. opt in and out of. They are biological events. You can think of them like a tunnel. You have to get through them to get out. And so when we don't, when we have something significantly overwhelming, our beautiful, sophisticated, amazing system adapts. 
because it thinks we're in danger. And it reprioritizes function and blood flow in 47 different parts of your brain and body, which is a miracle. And unfortunately, one of the things that goes offline is that file system. So instead of this neat file, because if you think about it, you don't need to be doing filing when you're like running away from a wolf when you're in an emergency situation. So um, the thing that happens is you get a fragmented file. So in those little guys in the file room are doing something else. They're preparing you for threat and danger and helping you get ready for what you're about to encounter. And so they run out of the file room, and stuff gets thrown into the file room, but not in an organized fashion. right? And so the result of that is that then there's these fragments, and the little guys in the file room don't like that. They want everything to be organized. And so anytime they recognize something in your periphery that is from that file, it's like, oh, there's that post-it note, that color orange. That's important. It might be dangerous. And it throws the file to the front of your brain. The problem is the alarm system in your brain also recognizes that as danger, and you're off to the races. So when you have a normal event, you have a very organized file that gets put away and can get taken out and then put back in whenever you need. When you have something that's got that unbearable emotion attached to it, which again can be anything, there's not a list of things that we can figure out that, that always do that or don't, you get a fragmented file. And then that fragmented file creates a problem for your brain. And that is where the trigger comes from. The thing that I want you to take away, if you take away absolutely nothing else, is the fact, biologically, that the trauma response is a strength response. It is not a sign of weakness or disorder. It is there to keep you alive. Because if those little file dudes kept doing what they were doing instead of went and did what else needed to be done, you wouldn't stay alive. We need that for evolution, for survival. Things go haywire and we start to get symptoms when we get stuck in the trauma response. And that can happen in really obvious ways where we are triggered um, all the time or where we have a very, like, I think one of the reasons why we, we come down to a list of things that are traumatic is that it's very easy to see in some circumstances. If you've gone to combat, for example, there's a set of triggers that we can likely predict for you um, that might cause this response. Um, but when you have your your traumatic event is something more subterranean, something that is not recognized, then it gets a lot sneakier and harder to pin down. And so what happens is the trauma wants to be healed. I think I said this morning that there's this dynamic tension at the center of trauma. It wants to come forward, and then it also wants to hide. And so it's, it's at war with itself until it gets integrated. And so when that starts to come up, your system will also start to shut down. And that can create these very confusing, very distressing symptoms around trauma. And we get tricked because of shame and bad science into thinking we are broken. We are not. In fact, the, si the sign of the symptoms is showing us that we are functioning as we are supposed to. We just need to recalibrate the system. So let me ask you something, um, and I'm going to use this, uh, although generic, it's, uh, it's just because it's so common. Uh, since I've been working in nonprofit with teenagers yeah. to adults, um, sexual abuse, sexual assault, yeah. you know, I would say, I don't know, three out of five people, right? So um, let's say in your childhood, I don't know, say eight years old, something happened, yeah. there was um, some sexual abuse. So because it was traumatic and unsafe, the filing, mm -hmm. what happens filing-wise? 
you get a fragmented, fragmented file. file. Yeah. And then I know this is different for everyone, but then how does that trauma then manifest, uh, leak through, ripple through your life? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, because that's kind of the virus, right? Is yes. yes. The, the fragments and yes. what fragments. And this is actually one of the things that makes trauma so fascinating to study and also so difficult because the symptoms can be anything. And so for a really long time, way back in the 1800s, it just, we didn't understand what was happening because there wasn't like a set of symptoms that conformed in every case. It was different for every, some people would be really activated. Some people would be shut down. Some people would be able to connect with other people. Some people wouldn't. And so, I mean, a simple example of that is, um, some people, a lot of people go through, uh, have had sexual trauma, either, um, let's say, uh, teenagers or twenties, they're either, um, very sexually active or they're completely go the other way and they're very, you know, yeah, disconnected or purposely gain a lot of weight or, uh, kind of protect themselves in that way. Um, so it's, it's, it's unique to the experience. Yes, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the symptoms can kind of come out in any, in any way. What you will notice is dysfunction and distress in your life in some way, a block. So it could be um, that, you know, you were talking last night about the getting close and feeling like, I, yeah, I'm ready to have intimacy and then boom, I can't, mm-hmm. right? Um, it can come out in your professional life if you continue to hit a ceiling, of success and you find yourself self-sabotaging. Um, it can come out in all sorts of different ways, the, which is both frustrating, but we can still work with it because when we notice and tune into where we are headed and what's getting in the way, then we can work with what's getting in the way, right? If we aren't aware and we're just charging forward, that's when we, we really get in trouble. So to go back to the kind of more simple example of someone who's had you know, an assault, um, early on that could result in it. And it often kind of splits into two paths. So you have someone who doesn't, who hides and doesn't mm-hmm. have any sexual intimacy at all. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel like that's possible for them. And then the other side, which doesn't get talked about enough, in my opinion, is a hypersexuality mm-hmm. because it's an attempt to take back control of that area of life that got stolen. Um, and both of those things are adaptations that are chosen compulsively which again, we can't shame those things because they are the system's attempt to adapt and protect. Once we have awareness, we can choose different adaptations, but we need to have that awareness and also push away the shame first. I want to talk a little bit about a relational home and why it's so Mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm. Because if you have, um, not everyone is traumatized by a traumatic thing. And that's something that almost never gets talked about and is really important to understand. We used to use it a lot to shame veterans and say that, um, th- that, that combat trauma wasn't even real because you'd take two soldiers, same battalion, same combat, same position. One of them would come back with the symptoms of PTSD and the other one wouldn't. And so what do we do in the field of psychology? We turn to the person who has the symptoms and we say, well, there's something wrong with you already. You went in broken because your friend here who went through the same thing. Yeah, it was fine. Exactly. But as we've done much more research, I know, (laughs) we realize that um, it's not just the event, but it's the way the event gets catalyzed afterwards that's really critically important. And this brings us to this idea of a relational home. So if you have an assault early in life and you have a supportive network of people to help you bear what was initially unbearable, it is much less likely that what was traumatic will become lasting trauma. If you don't have a relational home, then you, the situation is sort of ripe for the creation of, of complex trauma, trauma that, that lasts for a long time. 
Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So then there's the question of like, what is a relational home? Mm -hmm. And my students sometimes get mad at me because this is sort of a vague term on purpose. I like that it has room because I think a relational home can be many, many things. And we absolutely have to get out of the mindset that says the only space we can talk about trauma is in a closed therapy room with one person. Mm -hmm. Because we heal in all of our relationships. One of the, the most wild ironies about being human is that we are often harmed in relationship mm -hmm. and that we need healing in relationship. And so um, a relational home can look like, you know, John and I texting about a TV thing that, that failed. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, fuck TV. Yes. True <laughs> right? story. That just happened. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to put you on um, blast that, that's, that, that was traumatic for me. I'm <laughs> so, yeah. So TV opportunity doesn't happen. My frustrations. We're connecting, texting as friends. She says, fuck TV. When she says, fuck TV, um, it made me feel like, oh, she's on my side. Mm -hmm. She's creating, in a way, a safe container. She's validating me. Um, she's saying, don't let them have power over you. So there's a lot of stuff happening just based on those two words, right? Um, and you're so much bigger than TV. Like, fuck TV. I mean, I, you're John That's that subject. That, that, that. <laughs> anyway, so that, that, but yeah, so that made me feel uh, safe, loved, seen, understood, mm -hmm. you know. Um, now, of course, it's not just to those two words because if the UPS guy said that to me, I'd be like, you know, uh, but it, it's also based on a relationship, you know, that I trust you and that we have history. Yeah. So even something like that is a relational home? Yes. Yeah. And I think sometimes we get a relational home from, like, you know, um, the person in the grocery store that mm -hmm. you, where you mm -hmm. turn to them and you say, wow, it's really crowded in here. And you're, t you're getting to that point of overwhelm. And they're like, yeah, I hate, I hate this place. I'm, you know, Trader Joe's is the worst. <laughs> and they resonate with you and meet you where you are yeah. in the overwhelm which instantly makes the overwhelm less overwhelming. And then your brain starts to regulate itself and those memory, those little file guys can go back into the memory file and they can have a little bit more space to do the organization and integration work that needs to happen. Um, I think in pictures, I, I've always have. And so um, when she says relation to home, which is also, you see, um, I think of safe tree. I think of it as kids, you, you touch the safe tree, oh, yeah, you're, you're yeah, safe yeah. here. Yes. Um, so whether that is two words or whether that is Sarah looking yeah. at you or holding your hand while you're doing ice, it could be in a relationship um, being held. Mm -hmm. It could be um, someone making you soup. Mm -hmm. It could be any of those things. So right now, us kind of having this conversation in a safe space, uh, this is a safe tree, mm -hmm. right? This is a relational home. Right. Yeah. The um, one of the, the really neat things about human psychology is that we think that we are individuals. Right. We think of ourselves as these rugged individuals and we are totally self-contained. Um, but what's actually true is that we are co-regulating all the time. Um, our neurobiology is actually interpersonal. And so when we are structuring memory files in our brain, we have an imagined audience. So if something funny happens at work, you're already thinking about, like, what is this going to look like in a tweet? Mm. How am I going to post this on Instagram? How is my partner going to relate to this when I get home, right? We are always sharing our emotional experience with other people, and that's a critical part of how we categorize 
our experiences. And so when we don't have a relational home and something is overwhelming to the point of unbearability, we have a huge problem. Um, and when we have a traumatic experience, often what people experience is sort of a shattering of the dyad. One of the voices goes away. And so you call out and there's no response. And so you start to feel isolated. Mm -hmm. In that experience, you really do need the brain of another person to help you regulate and come back to yourself and then reestablish that connection. Well, let's, let's pause for a second. Um, can you say your definition one more time again? Yes. Okay. Unbearable emotional experience yes. that lacks a relational home. Okay, now watch this. Think about your childhood. Uh, no no um, child enters adulthood unscarred, right? doesn't matter if you were abused or not or whatever. Uh, maybe parents were gone. I think about my childhood. Parents always at work. Me raised by pop culture outside till the lights got dark, uh, just getting into trouble. Uh, say the definition again. Unbearable emotional experience right. that lacks a relational home. Every day. Every day I had this. Yeah. Just riding bikes. Mm -hmm. um, coming in moments, coming at the recess, getting into a fight. Like, that was just childhood, you know? So I would say all of us have had, um, according to MC's definition, um, unbearable um, emotional experience. Uh, emotional that lacked a relational home, you know, when I tried to kiss the girl and she ran away, right? That is a simple example. The thing that happened, you know, at summer camp or the, when the guy stole my skateboard. Um, so the, the reason I love this is because we think of trauma as this big monster and then it's, yeah. it's covered in shame. And if you've been through trauma, fuck, I'm broken. There's things wrong with me and I got to go and do therapy. Um, we have all we all have trauma in our lives and here's the other thing it's going to continue yeah it's just the world that we live in you know um it's like saying okay i'm not gonna let anyone break my heart again and that's like that's ridiculous mm -hmm. you know our hearts are actually meant to break mm -hmm. and so um when i think about childhood in that definition it makes trauma uh it normalizes it mm -hmm. and it's like oh it's not this big thing it's not this uh um, big thing that's dripping with stigma and shame. Mm -hmm. It's actually threaded into our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. It's not something we need to protect ourselves from or, or feel like we have to be hypervigilant about. It's going to happen. And the more that we learn about our individual responses and how they work, the more of a say we have about what does happen to us. We can never control what's coming but we can control how it lands and what we do with it. Mm -hmm. And there's an incredible amount of hope and beauty in that and empowerment as well. But um, when it comes to traumatic experience, the hierarchy doesn't make any biological sense because the part of your brain that is assessing for threat is too primitive to tell the difference between one type of trauma or another. And so the type of trauma that you experience, when your alarm system is going off, it could be because someone's got a gun aimed at you or because someone just shrugged their shoulders in a way that reminds you of, of your father. It, it, it could be anything. A tone of voice. Exactly. A smell, a color, anything. One of the things that's so tricky about trauma, especially because it so often happens in relationships, unless we're talking about like a natural disaster, of course, is that um, it really shatters meaning. And, and it, it stamps the world with this belief that 
people are unsafe, that we are unlovable, Mm -hmm. that we are meant to be ashamed, that we can never feel love. David Morris says that trauma is a truth that tells you a lie, Mm -hmm. that peace is an illusion, that love is impossible. So the truth at the center of trauma is that we are vulnerable, infinitely vulnerable as humans. And we spend a lot of time trying to pretend that we're not. And so trauma shows us that, that we are vulnerable. The lie is that we then have to be closed forever. To protect ourselves. Right.